This is the Words Matter Library, brought to you by Audible. I'm so happy to have with me my friend, the author Dave Cullen, who is such a good friend that I frequently let him take my dog when I'm (laughs) traveling and on the road for focus groups. So thank you, Dave. But Dave is truly one of the greatest narrative nonfiction writers of the past century, in my (laughs) opinion. And it's not just yours truly who thinks this. Uh, You're a New York Times bestselling author and have received such widespread acclaim for your seminal narrative nonfiction book about Columbine. I'm still bracing from that. <laughs> that was that's really great. And Bobby Sneakers, your dog, makes it all worthwhile, too. Um, right. So Columbine, I mean, the first day I just saw it when it first hit local TV. I lived in Denver and I went out there. I didn't know where it was, so I drove in that direction and I saw the, the helicopter circling overhead and I literally drove toward them until I hit a police barricade. And so it was one of those things as a journalist, you're just in there and start talking to people. And I didn't realize uh, that, you know, I went out there when there were only reports of shooting. So I didn't even kind of expect there to be injuries. So I was completely in over my head and had no idea what I was getting into. And I was shocked when I found out people had died and kind of horrified and overcome. But you just, you know, you're a reporter. You just start talking to people and you deal as it comes. And it was the morning after that really shocked me and that I think more than anything led to the book because the day it happened was kind of everything you would imagine. It was complete chaos, everybody running around, crying, just sobbing, seeing their moms rushing and clenching each other and nothing that, you know, would surprise you at all. The next day was completely different and completely unexpected. Those They had changed overnight. Almost nobody was crying a- at all. They were walking around with these vacant stares, you know, psychologists refer to as blank affect. They had gone numb overnight. And the weird thing, after I figured out how to talk to them about it without and realized they did want to talk about it, because, um, you know, I didn't want to play psychologist and be a, you know, Dick reporter. Um, but I found very quickly they wanted to talk about it. They needed to talk about an adult and they were afraid of it. And they could all tell me when it happened, like 3 a.m., the tears just stopped or 6 a.m. or whatever it was. And none of them had slept. But they knew it had been a very sudden thing where their emotions shut down. They hit overload and, and stopped emoting. And they were kind of freaking out about it. So anyway, so that's when I kind of realized well, first of all, I, I wondered, are these going to be like a generation of Vietnam vets, you know, the worst of them who are going to be shell-shocked for life? Are they going to be, you know, a, a lost generation? And I really didn't know. And so I really stuck with the story to find out what happened to them. And I knew it would take a long time. And it did. It took you 10 years, which is why it's such an amazing piece of reporting. And you really – the men and women and teenagers that you met in the immediate aftermath, you kept up with them for years. And that's why it's such a portrait of a tragedy that isn't just about the tragic moment, but you explore with so much empathy how it affected the lives of families and of this community and teachers and students, but also the lives of the parents of Mm -hmm. the killers. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard not to because um, with any things, I mean, one of the sort of great joys of reporting is you just get to meet these people. And, you know, you go into their house and talk to them and 
Well, I mean, if you have any kind of soul, it changes you and you just have to sort of like get what they're going through. And often surprises me. I remember actually after the book, I included this in the afterward, I, I interviewed Linda Mauser for the first time. And so this was about a little more than 10 years after. She told me in her dental hygienist chair, she had a breakdown. And she was getting a little, you know, pushback for not having floss properly. And she just broke down sobbing and said, you know, I'm sorry, my son died. I just didn't want to floss. And the woman was really uh, felt awful and said, oh, did your son die recently? You know, she said, no, well, at Columbine 10 years ago. And the woman was sort of like, you know, kind of rolled her eyes a little bit. And uh, Linda got mad and said, um, you know, when, you're, when your child dies, it's always recent. It's forever, and it's always going to hurt. And a lot of those parents never got over it, and they're never going to. But once, I mean, once you meet them and you spend time with them, you you see it from their point of view. And you, I mean, my my goal as a writer is then to sort of like capture that on the page, and you know, let you as a reader feel what it's like to be a parent in in ways maybe you didn't expect. And you've kept in touch with the parents long after the writing of the book. And that's something that I really admire about you as a writer, that it wasn't just about telling one story. You are personally connected to it. And you have really made it part of your life to study how these communities adjust in the aftermath of such a tragedy. And it's unfortunate. I... I'm horrified every time one of these tragedies happen and you're suddenly in demand to talk about a mass shooting. And I guess how many years has it been post-Columbine now? Almost 20. It'll be the 20th anniversary next spring. Almost 20. And just this year we had the the horrible incident in Parkland, which you've dedicated pretty much every waking second to reporting on since that tragedy happened. And then... You know, just uh, more recently, we had the massacre at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And what do you think are the lessons of Columbine almost 20 years later when we're looking at these ongoing onslaught of mass tragedy? Well, do you mean lessons in terms of what to do about it or the how to help the people who are grieving and the and the the, the survivors because those are two completely different or things. Why I guess why is it happening so frequently? And I know that you approached this initially as an anomaly. This was the first mass media sensation of a killing, and it was overcovered in your opinion. I find your critique of media coverage of these tragedies to be very informative just in terms of how we grapple with telling the story and not giving any glory whatsoever to murderers. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, we have this 20-year now epidemic of these mass murders because of Columbine and because the way they changed the landscape. And unfortunately, the perpetrators... Most of them, even with increasing frequency, now cite Eric and Dylan and Columbine by name in their Facebook posts and their manifestos and, and, and so forth when they're explaining themselves. These kids and often adults see Eric and Dylan as the founding fathers of this movement and emulate them and use – and I hate to say these are these are performances and the costuming um, – 
the the timing, the staging, what they do, even the one that was just there was Russia just had its first one um, about a week ago where 20 people were killed in the Crimea, the well occupied Ukraine. Um, that guy used wore similar clothes and, and, and took elements of Columbine uh, it, worldwide. People are following in their footsteps because what they did was they took the, the tactics of terrorism and they're the first modern ones to realize they could use that for their own aggrand- self-aggrandizement and just for their own petty purposes without a political agenda. And they weren't the first people who ever done that. There was a famous bath school bombing in Michigan in the early 20th century. I mean, there were different people. There was the, the sniper in, in, in Texas back in the 60s. But um, none of those people sort of started a movement. For whatever reason, it did not get traction. And I think the real reason, well, one of the biggest reasons Columbine did was because, because they weren't the first. When you have somebody like the Texas shooting, uh, when something extraordinary and unique happens, our response to it is, that's horrible. But not that's horrible when's the next one going to be because it feels like a you know a one off the thing is there had been several school shootings on a much smaller scale so the country was already on edge there were already different lots of new york times op-eds about it the coverage was increasingly verge of panic even though even though i'm only usually one or two or three people would get killed so there were smaller scale but still horrific so the country was sort of like rumbling and feeling, what if this turns into something horrible? Is this growing towards something? And then, bam, Columbine just exploded at this massive level and with bombs that were set to go off and just this horrible thing. And so the country reacted like, wow, now the horror is really here. These are our worst fears realized. This is a thing. And so no one thought this was a one-off. And so because they built on an existing thing and exploded it, that turned it into such a thing. And copycats immediately were like, oh, how we could do that now. You know, I hate that we score keep with these and do like the, you know, like the worst whatever. That, But one is crucial. Columbine is no longer in the top 10 of these. That's, that is insane and such a horrible statistic. Right. They, they've launched something way, way worse. And, and, and actually, I think some I'm not sure about this, but there may we may have experienced another horrible turn back in a different direction with the with the Pittsburgh uh, synagogue uh, shooting, because until now we hadn't had domestic terrorists sort of like turning it back to terrorism. Now, obviously, like Al Qaeda or you know. you know, terrorist groups know all about terrorism when we're not sort of like teaching them anything. But within the United States, in terms of domestic terrorism, you know, we haven't had that much. I mean, since Oklahoma City, I'm really afraid that over 20 years of this, now somebody realized, well, hey, you know, I could use this for my own back to domestic terrorists since it's just a thing. And hopefully this isn't the first of a wave of that on us, too. Let's talk about the political response to the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre. What do you make of how President Trump has handled the aftermath? Well, just like everything else he does is callous and and just, you know, he says, you know, America first or wherever he puts it. It's it's just Trump first. It's, you know, it is complete disregard for every other human on the planet to go to a place 
when they're not wanted, when he's not wanted, and before well, they're trying to have yeah, their funeral. What do you make of that? Because what would be the right call for a president who isn't wanted at a time of great tragedy when he historically would be the comforter in chief? Well, the first call that just every other president makes is uh, is have people get in touch with the families like when it works for you. When is the good time? Like obviously, like not during your funerals, or you know, like uh, so. I mean, that's an easy call with any fool could have. Uh, but in every situation, is different. Um, but you you ask instead of tell. You just say, "When's a good time for you? When you know? When will this help? When is it useful?" And you know, if they say like not, you know, not today, then by any means, you don't say today. You know, I. It was reported that, like, well, that was good for his schedule. He had other things on his plate. Well, great. Well, Grief either, doesn't follow a schedule. I, I know, right? Either change your schedule or don't do it. Like, you don't have to go, but don't, you know, drop in, you know, at the worst possible time. That's just, that's just. There's quite a heavy and dark debate ongoing about the role of President Trump's rhetoric in creating the tone of division in the country. And do you think that his rhetoric is playing any part in the uptick in violence that we're seeing? I do. But I also think I think the danger and the insidious nature of Fox News has never been really taken seriously as much as it should on the left or, or the middle. I, you know, and I watched it with my own very conservative parents who are always very conservative but it was only in the later Fox years where it was this sense of outrage. Well, it changed. It changed dramatically when Barack Obama mm-hmm. became president because I interned there in 2004 and I worked in the Bush White House. And it was a real news outlet mm-hmm. that would report harshly on what the Bush White House was doing. And now it's state TV and it's a complete sea change that I agree has infected our country. Right. You know, I I think it was healthy to have a left-leaning network and a right-leaning network. And, you know, CNN was generally in the middle. Um, That's healthy. But then to have sort of a propaganda arm, but also this outrage machine. I would come home um, and my mom would you know? As you know, I'm very, very in, interested in politics. Constantly on it. Uh, so my Your mom, mom would, would be so happy by how quickly you've written this next book. By the way, but yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Right? She thinks I'm incredibly lazy and just like doing nothing for ten years. Like, what are you taking? But I would come home and she would be irate over something. I wouldn't even know what she was talking about. And this was a once or twice. It was all the time. And sometimes my dad. And it was some outrage machine that Fox had ginned up over some petty, ridiculous thing. And I'd be. What? Like, I didn't even hear about that. And if I had, now you're telling me, well, so what? But it's just constant. They were they were constantly so, so angry and riled up above. Oh, that's just like trivial stuff. Like, you know, I'm I'm a left-leaning person. I get um, – but, you know, when Bush was president, I wasn't thrilled about it. But um, fine, he's president. Didn't like – yeah, for the most part – well, I didn't like that he got us into the Gulf War. I saw, like, you know, big problems. But for the most part, like, okay, he's being president. I don't agree with everything. But I was like – Angry, or and I was, I wasn't like on a daily basis just fuming like the the latest horrible thing he did. I, you know, ninety nine percent of the stuff he did was, you know, he was an honest, decent man doing, you know, his best job. You know, so what? That I didn't necessarily agree with, but 
we weren't at a, at this phase of like they are horrible, they are the enemy, they're doing terrible things, and and every you know they're out to get America. And and also, I mean, I was hearing that constantly, you know, at home of like you know taking our country away from us and this this kind of thing. Um, so. Yeah, so I, I think we're in a really, really bleak place right now, and it's yeah, it's no surprise that you know somebody is then taking this into his hands and you know killing people as as the enemy. Of course, we're the enemy. I'm the enemy too. You know. Well, Donald Trump has said we are the enemy of the people, which is something that I actually feel like media shouldn't belabor and should focus on asking questions about. The hundreds of children who are perhaps permanently orphaned because of the administration's actions, asking questions about why we are still at war in Afghanistan, asking questions about why Donald Trump thinks it's necessary to deploy as many troops as we have in Syria and Iraq on the border of our country. I think we should be asking those questions because words matter. And that is why I wanted to feature your book this week, because you took the time to tell an important story that had impact on a generation, but also is teaching us lessons about where we are today and how we can possibly escape this horrible cycle of violence self-inflicted in our own communities. And I'm really looking forward to Parkland. And I know that we'll learn a lot from reading that book. But until Parkland comes out in February, I encourage all of our listeners to download Columbine by Dave Cullen on Audible. Thanks so much, Dave, for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks very much for having me. And here's a special offer for our listeners. Go to audible.com slash words matter, and you can get a copy of Columbine by David Cullen for free with your 30-day free trial. That's audible.com slash words matter. Words matter.